everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. Pretty sweet intro video. Well done, attorney. I tip my proverbial cap to you. <laughs> and, uh, well done. Happy uh, fall, sort of. I know for those of you who have AC, you know, you moved here, you were told uh, it wouldn't be a big deal if you moved into an apartment without AC and now you're experiencing how horrible it is not to have AC. The good news is the weather will be fantastic tomorrow. So um, only one more night of sleeping in your own sweat. But it is almost the end of summer. And that's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, we are starting fall. Many of you are probably back from being out of town a lot. Many of you probably went on a number of family vacations this summer. Um, I know I mentioned this a number of times. My wife and I actually went on a summer vacation to Yellowstone, and I've talked a lot about this, telling you all my favorite parts of seeing all the you know, beautiful scenery and running into all these exotic animals. Um, what, what I have not shared from stage is actually my least favorite part of that trip. And um, my least favorite part of Yellowstone is there seems to be this kind of park-wide conspiracy to scare you to death about the potential of you being mauled by a bear. Um, and so anywhere you go, if any of you have been to Yellowstone, you know what I'm talking about. Anywhere you go in Yellowstone, uh, you've got warning signs warning you of potential bear attacks. You've got them in the bathrooms. You've got them in the gift shops. You've got them even as you are trying to eat your dinner. You will be there, you know, trying to eat some, some jello for dessert. And there's this little sign saying, beware of bear attacks with a cartoon bear mauling a cartoon hiker. And you're like, okay, uh, why are you doing this? And it became kind of the running joke of our vacation that this was a park-wide conspiracy because they were trying to trick inexperienced hikers into going to the gift shop where they oh so conveniently provided you a canister of bear spray for the very low price of $49.99. So this was like the running joke we had the entire trip. They're just trying to trick people. And um, a couple weeks ago, I'm at this party with, with some friends from the summit, and I'm telling this story, and I'm talking about, you know, how ridiculous it is that they were trying to trick these hikers, and how silly it was, you know, you'd see these guys in their new boots and their new backpacks going on the trail with their, you know, their bear spray on their hip like they were going to pull a gun in the wilderness. You know, I'm making fun of them and everything. And uh, I get home that night, and I'm checking the news, and I'm on the Denver Post website, and on the Denver Post website, there is this link that says four hikers attacked by grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park. Now, I'm like, huh, I should probably click that. So I click it, and it turns out that what happened is these four hikers are out in the backcountry. They, get, uh, you know, they stumble across some bear cubs. Mama bear is not very happy. Mama bear charges these four hikers, and they survive. And why do they survive? Why, why do you think they survive? They survive because they're carrying bear spray. And uh, I read that article and I think to myself, I am an idiot. Uh, and so um, here's what's interesting. My, my parents were with me on that trip and uh, I actually forwarded them that article from the Denver Post. And my mom, who's a little bit cautious and knows we hike all the time around Denver, actually sent me a canister of bear spray. <laughs> so this is not a made up story, right? I did not like buy this for the sake of an illustration. I even left it in the plastic canisters. I don't spray myself here um, on stage by accident. Uh, she sent me this because I guess she was worried that as we hike around Denver, maybe we'll stumble across some bears. So I'll be carrying this with me wherever I go. Um, but, but here's the thing is that um, when, when I opened up the package and, and saw this bear spray, uh, what struck me is that um, this thing's existence does me no good if I'm under the illusion that I'm safe. You tracking with me? Like, the fact that bear spray exists 
does me no good if I'm hiking in the backcountry without it because I was under the illusion like bear attacks never happen to people like me. So this thing's existence does me no good when I'm under the illusion that I'm safe. Now, that is kind of the idea that Paul wants us, the author of this letter, wants us to understand as we are beginning this letter he writes to us and to the Ephesians. Not, this letter is not about bears, okay? There's no bears in this letter whatsoever. But here's the deal, is this letter will do no good in your life as long as you're under the illusion that you're safe. What Paul is doing is writing This letter, and it's meant to serve as as a protectant, a survival guide for men and women who are trying to follow Jesus in an environment where it's really hard to follow Jesus. And here's the deal. What you're going to see tonight is you live in such an environment. Now, for some of you, you grew up and you were raised in environments where it was very easy uh, to to at least get close to Jesus, right? I mean, you were raised where it was expected to go to church and it was a normal rhythm of what your family did. And you would just talk about Jesus regularly and the ebb and flow of what was going on in your day. But that's not the case in the city of Denver. Now, I'm not hating on this city. There's so many good opportunities in the city. We talk about this. You've got incredible out outdoor recreational opportunities. You've got incredible uh, concert venues to go to. We've even got professional teams that are somewhat good now for the first time in a very long time, right? Take that, Baltimore Ravens. Yes, uh, yeah, take that. Um, so, so we've got all these incredibly good opportunities, but here's the deal. For those of you who do life in this city, you know that oftentimes those good opportunities distract you from the best opportunities that oftentimes what happens is we are distracted from that which is greatest for our life, knowing and loving and being known and being loved by our Creator God who desires to shepherd our souls. And so as we turn our attention to this book, what we understand is what, what Paul is writing for you and I who do life in this city that we love so much is that you and I, we need a survival God. You can be under the illusion that, you know, you can just go and do life without a whole lot of purpose and a whole lot of intentionality, and you'll just go ahead and naturally arrive at the destination of peace and prosperity and blessing and grace that God desires for your life. But I'm telling you, you're under nothing but an illusion of safety. And a warning God, a survival God, a protectant does no good in your life when you're under such an illusion. And so we're going to jump into these first two verses tonight. We're going to try to learn what does it look like? Why is it so hard for us to follow Jesus in this city that we love so much? And here's the deal, is that we want to heed this warning and take it seriously and let it apply to our lives so this book can become practical and a protectant over our lives as well. Now, what Paul's going to do in these first two verses, he's going to lay the foundation Uh, of why it's so hard for us to follow Jesus in the city. Why do we need a survival guide? And here's what you're going to get tonight. You're going to get kind of two reasons why it's it's hard to follow Jesus in the city, okay? Now, the first we're going to look at is the city and its environment, okay? The city and its environment. Now, look with me down at verse 1, where we'll jump into this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, Like Andy said, this is a letter, okay? So many of you, you receive handwritten letters, you receive emails. So so this is a letter that was written by someone 
for you, into your life. And all Paul is doing here is telling you who is the sender of the letter. Now, we've spent a lot of this year studying who Paul was. Paul used to be Saul. Saul was a leader of a Jewish movement that tried to stamp out Christianity before it got big. And so it went even as far to kill people. Saul would be considered a religious terrorist by our categories of today. But while Saul was persecuting Jesus, Jesus was pursuing Paul and he had his life turned upside down by the gospel. Saul became Paul. He went from terrorist to pastor and he went on to plant a number of churches and to write a large portion of the New Testament. Now, look what he says next. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it's that sentence that we're going to spend the majority of our time in tonight as we just kind of lay the groundwork of this series. And what we were going to pay our uh, most attention to is um, what he says there, where he says, who are in Ephesus? Who are in Ephesus? Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who live in a city called Ephesus. This, this letter was written in 62 AD. And in about this time, Ephesus was one of, if not the leading cities in the world. Think New York, think Tokyo, think San Francisco, think Denver, greatest city in the world in my opinion. Fantastic city. It was influential. It was the wealthiest city in the wealthiest region of the Roman Empire of the day. A port city, commerce, trade, diversity, entertainment. It was the place to live. It was influential. It actually was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was home to the, uh, the temple of Artemis. Uh, she was the Greek goddess of fertility. And they actually built a 10,000 square foot temple in her honor. Just to give you kind of a, a category of how big that is, the building you're sitting in right now is one of the largest in downtown Denver as far as churches go. And this is 10,000 square feet. So you have to think they built a, a temple 10 times the size of the the one that you're sitting in uh, right now to this pagan goddess. And you're starting to get a glimpse into the environment of this city. But here's the deal, is we actually get a better glimpse when we see that Paul himself, the author of this letter, actually lived in the city of Ephesus for three years. For three years, he lived in this city. And what I want to do is actually jump back in time to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. This, This event is kind of chronicled in Acts 18 to 20. I I would read that for yourself if you can. Um, But what you see in in the part we're going to look at in Acts chapter 19 are are two things that we learn about the city and its environment, not just back in Ephesus, but in our city as well. Okay? So so let's learn a little bit about the city and its environment. Now, we're going to learn two things. The first is this, is the, the city depended on idolatry. Okay? The first is the city depended on idolatry. And we're going to show you uh, kind of what we're talking about up on the screen if you haven't been able to flip there yet. What we're going to see is Paul moves to the city. In this city, Christianity begins to grow. And a guy named Demetrius kind of raises the, 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 he sounds the alarm basically to say, hey, we need to think about the implications of where this is going. Look at verse uh, 24 up on the screen with me. It says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You see what's happening here? This guy is a professional idol builder. 
He's a silversmith. He builds tiny little statues. He sells them to people. And because people worship this goddess, they make a killing, a financial killing. And he says this. He says, you know from this business we have our wealth. But look at verse 26. Here's where he's getting concerned. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Do you see what's happening here? Christianity is breaking into this influential city. And it's not opposed because it's philosophically unsound or because of the truth claims that it happens to be made. It's, it's, it's being opposed because it's bad for business. He calls a meeting and he says, we desperately need our people to continue in their self-destructive idolatry if we are going to be able to make a living in this city. Now, on the surface, that doesn't feel very relevant for us because when we think about kind of the ebb and flow of our lives, I mean, I don't know about you, but probably this week, uh, you did not purchase a tiny little silver statue and bow down to it in the hopes that it would bless your life, right? I mean, maybe you did, and I'm not going to judge you. Well, I probably will judge you if you did. Everybody else around you will judge you if you did. But here's the deal. You probably didn't do that in the ebb and flow of your week this past week. But here's the deal, is the biblical understanding of idolatry is far more robust than that. You see, what idolatry is, is not so much bowing down to silver statues as it is carrying the belief that something created has the ability to do the work of the creator. That something that's less than God has the ability to do the work of God in your life. And here's the deal. We don't bow down to silver statues like the people in Ephesus. But you and I, if you're anything like me, you carry this deep-held belief that something that's created can do the work of the creator in your life. Right? I mean, so for some of you, for many of you, what... What's brought you to Denver, what keeps you in Denver is a lifestyle. And let me tell you, all the time I meet people who, who are moving to the city, who are staying in the city, who are thinking about next steps in the city, and you ask, you know, what, what brought you here? And it was like, well, here's the deal. I was at a major crossroads in my life. I just had a divorce. I just broke up with the girl I was living with. Uh, I just finished grad school. I could move anywhere. I was tired of living with my parents. And this seemed like a great city to live. But here's the deal. There's nothing wrong with that on the, about that on the surface. But, but it's interesting, in the ebb and flow of my conversations, at least, and I'm not sure if this is your experience as well, in the ebb and flow of all that, what I've experienced is a lot of times what people are looking for is something deeper than a lifestyle or an experience. They're looking for a brand new life. They're looking for the opportunity to start again. They're looking for the opportunity, in the words of Jesus, to be born again. And a lot of times people move in Denver and they stay in Denver because of the opportunity to be given the gift of a brand new life. I mean, doesn't it make sense that only God himself, the creator, is able to do that, not something that's created? A lot of times what brings and keeps people to the city of Denver is the opportunity to meet somebody, right? I mean, for many of you, you grew up uh, maybe in smaller towns, maybe even towns that were so small, there are more cows than there are people of the other sex. And so your, your prospects of meeting somebody were not very good. And so you moved to the city. There's 3 million people. Most of them are young and single. And that's a lot of somebodies. That's a lot of somebodies that you can potential meet, potentially meet. And here's the deal. When I have those conversations, I'm not sure if this is your feeling or if this is your interaction. A lot of times as I'm having those conversations, what, what I experience is people saying it's something deeper than just wanting to know somebody or love somebody, or marry somebody. There's nothing wrong with those desires. But there's something deeper going on where somebody is clamoring to be known and loved and cared for and provided by, for by another as their heart has always craved. 
in a way that's so deep and so secure and so unwavering that I would say when you read the Bible, the only person in all of human history who's provided that is God himself. And a lot of times what, what brings us to the city, what keeps us to the city, what motivates our life in the city and what we do is this belief that there's this one thing, there's this one person, there's this one job opportunity, there's one, this one physical appearance, there's this one drug, there's this one experience, there's this one concert, there's this one something. I'm not sure what it is. What, what is that one thing for you? That if I can achieve and grab a hold to and experience, then finally I will experience the goodness and grace and blessing I always clamored for. I mean, don't you see at the root of all of that is idolatry. It's the belief that something created can do the work that only the creator can do. Yes, you and I, we don't bow down to silver little statues, but it's still the same promise wrapped in different packaging. This thing that's created, this thing that's less than God can bring the blessing of God in my life. And I will finally be satisfied and happy as I've always longed to be. And so the city, the city depends on idolatry. Not only that, but the second thing that we learned from Paul's experience is not only did the city depend on idolatry, but the city also resisted renewal, okay? The city resisted renewal. And look at what happens next. This guy, Demetrius, he calls this meeting to raise the concern. And here's what happens next. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius, and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So, so they don't look at the truth claims and they don't say, you know what, this is correct, this is true for my life, I should believe it, I should, we should probably think of an alternative marketing strategy in order to make things better. No, they get angry, they grab these guys, they drag them into the theater, and it gets a violence. What you see in this city is not only is idolatry dependent upon, but when those idols are potentially going to die, die, the renewal is significantly resisted as well. And here's the deal. You've experienced this as well. Maybe it's not that violent for you, but you know it. I mean, here's the deal. Some of you here tonight, you're kind of on the, the, the cusp of becoming a follower of Jesus, right? You got invited by a friend. You've been coming for a period of time. You're trying to figure out what exactly is this whole spirituality thing supposed to have in my life. And you know, you know that if tonight you made the decision to become a follower of Jesus, next week we're doing a baptism. You made the decision to get baptized next week. And you went in tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and told your coworkers about what happened tonight. You are not going to be met with celebration. You're not going to be met with encouragement. You're going to be met with skepticism, mockery, and kind of an awkward silence where, you know, the person's thinking to himself, like, how can I get out of this awkward conversation about religion as quickly as possible? You know that's the way it's going to be. Why is that? Why is that? Because I think what happens in cities as we do life with other people is people resist the idolatry we depend on being broken because none of us want to see that our idols are powerless. None of us want to see that. I mean, why do you think, why do you think that for those of you who have recently become Christians and are living a changed life now, why is it that you've got friends who make fun of you for not drinking as heavily as you used to drink? Why, why is it for some of you, you've got families who, who criticize you for, for, for having different priorities than the ones you had when you moved out here? Why is it for your friends, you get mocked or not invited to stuff anymore because you're now a prude, because you now don't hang out as the way, you, you're not as fun as you used to be? And it's like, all you're doing is making responsible decisions as an adult, right? All you're doing is being a responsible human being. Why would somebody criticize you for, for no longer making 
making such self-destructive decisions. Because nobody wants to be exposed to the fact that these idols are jobs, money, stuff, drinking, drugs, can be powerless. Can be powerless. And that's what happens in a city. These idols that we depend on, when the gospel breaks in, are found powerless. But but here's the deal. It's the renewal of the gospel is resisted strongly. And many of you experience this. And so here's the deal. Is that if you're doing life in this city, this is the environment that you live in. Idolatry is depended upon. Renewal is resisted. This is the environment. This is the air you breathe, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is we hate the city. I'm not saying we criticize the city. I'm not saying we move out of the city. I live just a few blocks away from here. But here's the deal is you and I, we start doing life in the city with far greater intentionality, with far greater purpose, with far greater thoughtfulness. And we lay down this presupposition that you and I can just naturally do life and it'll be totally fine and I'll just drift towards the destination that God desires for my life. It doesn't work that way. What Paul is saying is your life and mine in this city is like a car that's horribly out of alignment. When you let go of the steering wheel, you don't just drift towards a destination of beauty and blessing. You drift into the ditch. You drift and hit the tree. And the good news is, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. For some of you, it's been that way your whole life, and it doesn't have to be that way anymore because the gospel breaks into a city and it creates a brand new counterculture of people. Men and women following Jesus, freed from idols, living a life of renewal, living a brand new story. And so that's the environment that you and I, we live in as we do life in the city. And we don't criticize, we love the city, but we do life in the city with greater intentionality. Now, not only is it important for us to understand the city and its environment, um, here's the deal. We also have to understand the city and your identity, okay? The city and your identity. And here's the deal, here's the connection, is that where we live has a tremendous influence on our interpretation of who I am. All right, I'll say it again. Uh, where we live, the environment of where we live has a tremendous uh, amount of influence on my interpretation of who I am and your interpretation of who you are as well. Now, here's the deal. Um, I have some bad news for those of us who try to do life in this city when it comes to identity, and it's threefold. Um, the city often makes, uh, it often gives us an identity, one. Two, um, that identity is often very damaging to us. Three, it's very hard to lose that identity when we realize it's bad for us. Okay, let me just kind of walk through this in, in order. So one, the city often gives us an identity, right? So, so we move here. So some of you moved here for a job. And for you, you are your job. When, when you think about just kind of when you introduce yourself, it just kind of comes out of you. Like, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is how successful I am. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying when you think of uh, your life in this city, you've been very successful. You've been very entrepreneurial. You've been very talented. And that's awesome. But you are your job. For some of you, you are uh, the fact that you're dating somebody, right? So, um, you are the person 
who uh, came here looking for someone, you found someone, and now you're the person who just finds a way to mention that you met someone in every conversation you get into, um, whether it's relevant to that conversation or not, right? Okay, so that's some of you. Uh, For some of you, uh, you know, life in the city uh, has led to you experiencing really bad things, right? You've been exposed to something awful, and um, it's, it's been terrible for your life. And so uh, even though you don't want it to be this way, when you think of yourself, when other people think of you, they think of you as nothing more than a victim, right? That's, just, that's even the way they refer to you as a victim. And for some of you, you yourself have made really bad decisions. So, so you've moved here, and um, you've made all sorts of bad decisions. And now, I mean, you're known, and you think of yourself as nothing more uh, than the addict, nothing more than uh, the... Uh, than the convicts, nothing more than the dropout. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. So, so we move to the city. We, as we do life in the city, we're given these identities. And here's the deal. Not only are we given these identities, but a lot of times these identities are damaging to our souls. Now, that's obvious for the bad stuff, like victim and addict and convict, but it's bad even for the good stuff as well. I mean, because here's the deal. Is even if you're tremendously successful and you are your job, let me ask you a question. What happens not if... But when that job is taken away from you, it will be at some point. Let me ask you a question. Even if you're in the best physical shape of your life and you are your appearance, I mean, what happens when those looks begin to fade? It it will happen at some point, no matter how diligent you are about your diet and your workout regimen. Here's the deal. Even if you've met the best guy in the world and you are your relationship, What happens if that person breaks up with you or divorces you or leaves you? What happens, I mean, not if, but when that person dies? Don't you see how damaging it is for us to build who I am upon such shaky ground? And here's the deal. is not only are we given these identities, not only are they damaging to our souls, but they're so hard for us to lose once they've been given to us. They're so hard for us to lose. In fact, I was watching a... uh, an interview a couple weeks ago with um, Michael Richards. You guys know who Michael Richards are? He's the actor who plays Kramer on Seinfeld. And, um, and I don't know if you know this, but he had like a tremendously public emotional breakdown a few years ago. He was in the middle of a stand-up routine. Somebody heckled him. He decided to yell all sorts of racist comments back. It all got caught on camera. His career was gone. And um, this, this interview I was watching with him was him kind of processing what led to that breakdown. And what he said was, it actually, at the heart of it, was an identity crisis. He said, you know, he was used to going everywhere and walking down the streets of New York and people being like, hey, Kramer! You know, and the problem is, like, that's not who he really is. Like, that's not his name, right? And pretty soon that show went off the air, and he's walking down the streets of New York, and people are yelling out, hey, Kramer. And the problem is, like, he's now defined by a show that's not even on the air anymore. And so he has a complete emotional breakdown. He's, he, he decides to get away. He says, I have to get away. I have to go somewhere where nobody knows me. Nobody will yell out my name of, of hey, Kramer. And, uh, and I just have to go find myself. And so he does. He, he leaves North America. He goes to Africa. He actually goes into kind of the wilderness, the bush of Africa. I mean, he's in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't see anybody for days. He doesn't see anybody for weeks. And he tells this story where actually he was off on this hike, kind of like a walkabout. And he goes and he actually encounters a couple of indigenous natives, a couple of indigenous natives. So you can imagine what this is like. Um, this is just rain, by the way. This is just the there's not like machine gun fire taking place. Uh, that's the benefit of meeting in a tin can like this building. Um, so you can imagine, he's on this walkabout. He goes, he's walking through the wilderness, and he comes across two natives, 
two indigenous natives. And I mean, you just imagine how awkward this is. He sees them, they see him, and uh, he says they're over here, and they just start a conversation with one another. So they're just like turning to one another and they're talking back and forth, but it's like their native dialect, right? He doesn't speak whatever sort of tribal language these guys speak. So they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They look at him, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then pretty soon, they actually stop, and one of the guys starts like giggling and getting really, really excited, and he points to him, and he's like, Kramer! Kramer, Kramer. And apparently they had satellite TV in the village that this guy, these guys came from. And he was just like, I'm never going to be able to escape this identity. And many of you have experienced, maybe not the exact same thing, but the same feeling, right? I mean, you have hoped to be known as something more than the hot girl, but you are still treated as nothing more than an object. You hoped to be something more than the mess up, the screw up, the person who has made mistakes their entire life. But when you get with your family, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've accomplished, you're still uh, viewed through the lens of your past mistakes. You want to be something more than the athlete, but whenever you get, get with people, you're known as nothing more. Oh, aren't you strong? And aren't you in shape? And isn't that incredible? And that's getting really old for you. And so you see this vicious cycle that we're caught in. I mean, here's the deal. We're given an identity. It's damaging for our souls. And it's unbelievably difficult for us to lose. And many of you have been stuck in that cycle again and again and again and again. Here's the deal. I want you to hold all of that in your mind when you look at what Paul writes here in, in this first sentence. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Why don't we say it together? To the saints who are in Ephesus. And a saint is just somebody who's been made holy by God, somebody who has been separated and chosen by God, somebody who's been given a brand new identity by God. You know, it's interesting because in this city, this city was not very different than our own, and this city was full of people who had made all sorts of mistakes, sexually, lifestyle, financially. I mean, they have made more mistakes. They experienced more temptation. They had committed more sin than probably any of us in this room. And you want to know how Paul addresses them? Not to the screw-ups, not to the hipsters, not to the business professional who's so talented and successful. What? To the saints. And when Paul writes that, when he writes those words to this church in Ephesus, when he writes those words to those of you who are followers of Jesus and thinking about becoming followers of Jesus, what he's saying is it's possible. It's possible for the cycle to be broken. It's possible to be given a brand new identity because God through the gospel makes all things new. You see, at the heart of our faith is ultimately an identity swap. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you ever saw the 1980s Eddie Murphy movie, Trading Places. Um, fantastic, theologically deep movie that I guess I think will sum up the gospel pretty much. But if you've ever seen that movie, you know that kind of at the heart of this story is this rich man becomes poor so a poor man can become rich, right? So this like wealthy Wall Street executive gives up his title so that another man can take on his appearance. And what happens is uh, it's got Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Dan Aykroyd, the wealthy Wall Street executive, gives up his riches so that Eddie Murphy, this homeless hustler basically, can take on the identity of being a wealthy Wall Street executive is the ultimate identity swap. Well, until you get 
to the heart of our faith. See, at the heart of our faith as Christians is something called the gospel. It's good news. And at the heart of the gospel, this good news, is the ultimate identity swap. You see, many of you are probably familiar with the fact, you know, Jesus was crucified, right? No matter kind of what your church background is, your, your spiritual beliefs are, you at least are familiar enough with Christianity to know that Jesus was crucified. What we believe is that at the moment Jesus was crucified, the ultimate identity swap was actually taking place. Jesus was becoming uh, poor so that I might become rich. What Jesus was doing when he was being crucified was he was actually taking on my identity. He took on my identity and what I deserve for my sinful identity. I deserve to be punished that way, but Jesus takes my identity identity upon himself. And not only does he take that upon himself, but he gifts me his identity and the full rights and privileges of his identity as well. And so the reason that I can be called saint instead of sinner, even though the vast majority of my life is one of sin, is because the great exchange has taken place of the gospel and Jesus has taken on my identity. He has given me his. He has become poor so that I might become rich. And what happens The heart of the Christian faith is the belief that not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, is that by God's grace, through your faith in him, when you come to believe what Jesus has done for you and commit your life to follow him, what happens is you are gifted a brand new identity. You, You are no longer identified by the mistakes of your past. You are no longer burdened by keeping up this performance in the present. You are known as the Son of God. No longer sinner, but saint. And the identity change, the gift of a new life that our hearts have clamored for, for many of us for decades... It's not something we, we find as something that did not have to be earned, but rather gifted. And when you become a Christian, all that's happening is you are receiving that gift, believing and following him. And so the city does, it impresses upon us this identity. And a lot of times they're bad, they're damaging, they're destructive. Many of you are living that story and that cycle again and again and again. But there is hope. Because Jesus took on my identity to give me his. And there is no better identity than being loved as a saint. Declared holy by God. Being chosen by him. Now what do we do with all this? Well, let's look at the end of this one sentence that we're spending tonight in. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And look at this last part. This is so crucial and are faithful in Christ Jesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What, what Paul is saying is that you and I, we are faithful in response to the faith God has planted in our hearts. Does that make sense? Like, so for example, um, if you planted an apple seed, you would expect uh, apples to pop out at, at some time. If it started you know, growing lemons, you would, you know, I, I don't know what you would do. Um, it, it would not be good. Here's the deal is that when God plants the seed of faith in your heart, it is meant to produce the fruit of faithfulness. In response to what God has done, who he is and what he has done changes who I am and how I live. And I stop living for myself and I start living in response to the faith that was given to me. I start living a life of faithfulness, of faithfulness. And here's what I want to ask you just as we close tonight. How's your faithfulness? How's your faithfulness? Are you living 
for those of you who are followers of Jesus, are you, are you living in accordance with the new identity that God has given you? Are you living that way? I mean, here's what I, here's what I know. For those of you, I'm, I'm just talking to those of you who've been Christians for some time. It's easy in this city um, not to take sin all that seriously. Because, I mean, nobody's going to criticize you for it. Actually, people are going to criticize you for living a life of holiness. And so it's easy for you. It's easy for us, for me, to slide into a sinful way of living, chronic, habitual sin that is so self-destructive. It's not wrong just because it's some arbitrary list of good and bad stuff. No, it is wrong because it defames the God who saves us. It's wrong because let me tell you the result of whatever it is you're stuck in. It doesn't go well for you. It doesn't go well for you. And God's faith that he's planted in your heart is meant to produce a life of faithfulness and purity and holiness in response. And let me talk to some of you um, who are just kind of on the cusp and trying to figure out what, what to do with this, all right? So some of you, you, know, you came here for the very first time and you're invited by a friend and you're trying to figure out what exactly is this supposed to look like in my life. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to start living a life of faith. I want to, I want to challenge you to that. I want you to receive what Jesus has done for you and start living a life that is in response to that. And here's the deal. I, we'll give you some action steps on the back end of the music here, but, but what I want to just challenge you to do is maybe if you have questions, if you have objections, if you have pushback, whatever it is, what I want to challenge you is if, if God is stirring something in your heart to talk to somebody tonight, okay? I'll be here at the, end of the very, at the very end here. Andy will be in the back. And we would love just to have a conversation with you about what you should do next. But let me just give you one possible action step for you to consider. Next week, we are doing a baptism, okay? Next week, we're going to baptize some people. So some of you, you, you haven't seen us do this. We've got a, a giant aluminum uh, horse trough over there. We bring it up here on stage. We fill it full of water. And we dunk someone under the water, and we bring them up out of the water. And you know why we do that? We do that not because we believe it has any sort of spiritual power in it. We do that not because we believe, um, you know, there's something mystical about touching the baptismal waters. No, we do it because it celebrates the gift of a brand new identity. That's why we do it. We, we do it because when you have been buried with Christ, we celebrate that when you go underneath the water. When you've been raised with Christ, we, we bring you out of the water. And Jesus' death and his resurrection means you are a brand new person. And so here's what I just want to challenge you. If you haven't been baptized since you became a Christian, I want to challenge you to get baptized next week. Why? Not because we're trying to like increase our numbers or because we're trying to get as many people up there on stage. Because God has given you a brand new identity. Why would you not celebrate that? So I want to challenge you to celebrate and put on display for everybody to see what God has done in your heart when he planted the seed of faith. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to thank God for this time. We're going to sing and celebrate who he is. And we're going to respond however it is he calls us to respond. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, for this survival, God, this warning for those of us who want to be serious about following you in this city. And God, I pray that we would be here at the Summit Church, men and women who do. I pray that we would be the types of uh, husbands and wives, moms and dads who, who spur on one another, raise up kids to chase after you. Not because religion is some nasty obligation of the past, but because you are finally giving us a glimpse into how we were created to live as men and women in this city. And in response to what you've done, I pray we live a life of faithfulness, not just as individuals, but as a community. 
men and women who are a city within the city, a counterculture existing for the goodness of God to spread to all corners of this city we love so much. And God, I pray now that as we are even just examining in our hearts how we should respond, whether it's uh, telling somebody about something we are chronically stuck in and we want to put to death, uh, whether it means exploring spirituality or Christianity and just having a conversation and grabbing a meal this week, uh, whether it's making the decision to get baptized next week. God, let us not be cowards, but let us be courageous and do whatever it is you call us to do. We love you. We thank you for this time. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.